Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and this week we're doing a special midweek episode where I wanted to dive into this new movie that just got released. So Netflix just dropped Leave the World Behind, and I will admit, I saw this blowing up on TikTok, and I just, I had to watch it. Consider this your full spoiler warning. I will be going through in depth a lot of the scenes in the movie and the ending. So if you have not watched it, please go watch it first before I ruin it for you. So for background, before I get into it, because I want you going into this interpretation with all of the information that I had prior. So all over TikTok, I saw um, scenes from the movie, particularly the beach scene and the Tesla scene. Um, and supposedly throughout this, during screenwriting, the Obamas had a big part in writing this movie. Now it is based off of a novel of the same name, but during screenwriting, the actual screenwriters reported that they were frightened as the Obamas had input on this. The other thing to really keep in mind is that the Obamas potentially, I haven't found any way to verify this, but the Obamas apparently find this movie to be a sort of warning for where the world may be headed. So without further ado, here is my interpretation of this two and a half hour movie, Leave the World Behind. Now immediately going into this, even with the intro scenes, the first thing I picked up on was the classic old school horror film score. And in this score, you will hear a lot of intentional dissonance using discord, sound, and even the absence of sound to create suspense for the viewer. And when I'm talking about discord or intentional dissonance, I'm mostly referring to the kind of straggling discordant piano notes or the short minor chords from the orchestral instruments, just a couple of strings that don't sound right. As we got further into the movie, I do have some beef with Julia Roberts' character. Her language in particular comes off as pretentious, like using words like soliloquy and verb, things that a white suburban mom typically does not use. It actually reminds me a lot of Dean Koontz's voice when he writes. I know Stephen King has endorsed Dean Koontz and I have read some of his work and it's not bad, but the, the overall tone and voice also comes across as pretentious. In my opinion, when they're written like this, we are already sacrificing our you know willing disbelief for this movie, right? This is supposedly stuff that isn't going to happen, has not happened, will not happen, all of that stuff. In my very humble opinion, I think that we are sacrificing willing suspension of disbelief for vocabulary prowess in this character. The tone and voice of the author come through very strong, and unfortunately, I do feel like it's leaning towards pretentious. Also, who impulsively schedules a trip and pays for it without their partner knowing? That was unrealistic to me. So throughout exposition, we end up taking this trip to what she calls a hamlet town. And I will admit, I had no idea what that meant outside of Shakespeare. So I did look it up. It sounds like Hamlet cities or Hamlet towns is just an unincorporated community within a town. So I suspect the goal here is to kind of express that they want to get off the grid, away from their day-to-day -day life, and get away. The other thing that I really like about this film is the filming technique. It's impeccable, truly. Um, the first glance or kind of montage through the vacation home really highlights the size, the grandeur, class, style, everything about this house. It makes the viewer want to be there. 
the side views are also extremely disoriented and it comes into play a lot in this movie where they'll go from kind of a landscape to a portrait mode without changing the setting of the scene. So we're looking at everything at a 90 degree angle and it is disorienting. One of the first signs of, again, intentional dissonance that we see is the boat scene, the beach scene. And I am still struggling with whether or not it is irresponsible on the parents' part. So they look out and see the tanker and it's headed directly towards them. Now, I don't think it's abnormal to see oil rigs, tankers and such out on the water, especially when you're talking about open ocean. But having it face directly towards shore, I feel like that is a cause for concern. And at the beginning, the only person concerned is their daughter. One thing I really liked about this scene was the contrast between the score and the filming. It's a huge disconnect cognitively for the viewer. It's supposed to be fun, it's the beach, we're on vacation, but at the same time there's this alarming suspenseful music and you got a tanker that's not changing direction. In this scene, I think we see that uh, the father is already far too trusting. He's kind of a golden retriever type of dad. Um, and it really shows the fluidity and natural discord between human relationships. The wife is obviously extremely type A controlling and borderline impulsive. Dad is the polar opposite. Once the boat grounding was revealed to be a technical issue with the navigation system, Julia Roberts begins to reference dependency on technology, but more directed to her children. I found this to be extremely forced commentary. It leaves very little to the imagination. Also, their current situation is widely unknown at this current place and time in the film universe. The kids can't travel on their own and most adults can't afford to travel on their own. Taking in media and communicating via social media is everything. It is educational, it's communicative, it even opens your eyes to other perspectives. I did not love Julia Roberts' commentary. Now, one thing I thought was fairly interesting, and this is the most intellectual that the father ends up seeming throughout the entirety of the movie, is he talks a lot about the symbolism of the deer showing up. He said in Mesoamerican mythology, it's supposedly good luck or it's supposed to bring good tidings. I did some digging and in a lot of mythological cultures, deer are representative of intuition, gentleness, emotional maturity and intelligence, things like that. For me, the significance of the first deer that they see before all of this happens or right after the boat is unknown at this time. I'll go into more detail on the herds of deer a little later on. As I went through this movie a couple of times, it really started to dawn on me why and how this movie is just so unnerving, frightening, even just downright spooky. And I think it's the plausibility. It is freaky how real this can seem so quickly. Because um, we do rely very heavily on technology. I'm not sure what I would do if my bank cards didn't work because I don't carry cash. I don't know what I would do without my phone that has calendar, GPS, everything on it. Additionally, this plausibility is what makes Julia Roberts' character so undoubtedly frustrating. Literally everything else in this movie is believable, plausible, relatable even. Julia Roberts is not written to be relatable. As we get further into the film and G.H. Scott shows up, the supposed owner of the house that they are like airbnb in, we get immediate themes of racism from Julia Roberts' character. And full disclaimer, like, benefit of the doubt, she was a little drunk when they first met. But this was such a stark contrast with the father. 
the dad doesn't reference their children sleeping upstairs while this stranger in being invited into the house. And I think it really shows the, the, the polarity between mom and dad. You have golden retriever father who is too trusting, compassionate, far too giving, not even a little bit cautious. And then you have mom who is overly cautious and it comes off as defensive. Now, when we first meet G.H. Scott, this could imply that this really is his home or that he accessed their emails for personal information to make his own story that much more believable. The emotional retaliation from the Ruth character definitely feels justified since Julia Roberts went right off the bat with racism and they will remain kind of at odds for the majority of the movie. Now, before we've determined who this man and woman are that have appeared on their doorstep, supposedly G.H. Scott, the owner of the home, he goes to open the locked liquor cabinet. Takes him a couple of tries and the camera intentionally does not show the keys, the lock, or what his hands are doing when he finally gets it open. There is reasonable suspicion that he broke it, leading us to, or I suppose leaving it open that this may not be his house and he may not be who he says he is. Also at that time, once he opens the drawer, we see a envelope of cash and a handgun. That handgun immediately becomes privileged information because currently only G.H. Scott, potentially Ruth, and the viewer know that it's there. Now, as we progress, tensions continue to rise between G.H. Scott and this family, and the racism becomes a lot less subtle. The dad, on the other hand, continues to show just a complete lack of self-awareness. Who accepts a mixed drink from a stranger without even watching them pour it? He's got terrible club safety. As we get further into the movie, um, we do end up getting these governmental alerts, right? So as Julia Roberts and G.H. Scott are talking, she asks him a question, and he conveniently gets to avoid answering it because his counterpart, Ruth, supposedly his daughter, turned on the TV to a horrific, loud, like, Amber Alert type of sound. This is when I really first started to wonder, are they father and daughter, or do they work together in whatever shady business is going on right now? As the night progresses, they go into their bedroom together, and they opt to sleep apart. Is this just because it's a dad and an adult daughter, or are they just co-workers, and it would be weird to sleep in the same bed? As we get further and further into the movie, um, obviously we have no technology available to us, so Dad opts to go into town to get a newspaper. Not a bad idea from Dad. As he's getting ready to leave, we do have confirmation that Ruth and G.H. Scott did show up in a vehicle last night and we just didn't hear it from the house. However, this does not mean that trust was gained for either of these people. The daughter at this point also made a comment that made me feel just ancient. Dad mentions, maybe we should get a set of rabbit ears while I'm in town. And this girl, this poor, ignorant young girl goes, what would a rabbit's ear do? Girl, when I tell you I felt 87 years old when I heard that. As we get more discussion from G.H. Scott, I did start to believe that this man probably does work in cybersecurity. However, he conveniently manages to avoid answering any questions. He's a very, very secretive man, which does not bode well for gaining the trust of the family. The reason that I started to believe he did work in cybersecurity is because he mentioned this love bug scam that went around. Um, I'm not sure if that is super common knowledge or if I am too young for it, but if it's not common knowledge, 
that definitely supports that he either played a hand in dealing with it, played a hand in releasing it, or just has working knowledge of cybersecurity and scams. Now, G.H. Scott also mentions his wife, Ruth's mother. He says she's an art dealer and she's traveling a lot. At this point, we don't know who these people are for sure. Unsure if the quote-unquote mom is actually related or is a counterpart in whatever scheme this is. When I really started to believe it was Ruth's emotional response to talking about her mother. If it was just a co-worker, they might be more than co-workers, but it is easy to believe that that is Ruth's mother based on her response and worry for her safety. As we get more insight into the home as well, I see a lot of like black history representation, which further supports that this is probably their house. Additionally, G.H. Scott knows these locals by name and has worked with some of these contractors. That was kind of the, the nail in the coffin for me that I think this is G.H. Scott. Nothing is ever fully verified by the end of this movie. This is also the first time that we start to see G.H. Scott show some fear and emotion when his satellite phone doesn't work. For me, this was kind of the fuck around and find out kind of moment where he realized that money does not protect him. His wealth will not keep him safe. As we see dad heading into town, he actually passes by a bridled horse with no rider chilling on the side of the road. And initially I thought, well, this guy's an idiot. Who would see that and not realize that that is an owned animal and there is something wrong? And even as I thought it satirically in my head, it occurred to me that if these folks are city folks, they might not actually know. It might just be pure ignorance. So as the movie progresses, we kind of get split scenes between the families and the G.H. Scott family as they try to figure out what the hell is happening. My initial thought when I saw G.H. Scott at his friend's house was, was this a robbery or was this a bad storm? There are still so many unknowns and it's really hard to tell just visually. As we go back to the dad's point of view, we see him get approached by a Hispanic woman who speaks absolutely no English. It is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie. You can see in her eyes how scared she is, she's sobbing, and you can see it in the dad's eyes how much it hurt him to leave her. And I feel like he's gonna get a lot of flack for leaving and not helping, but realistically, he has no resources for translation, zero ways to communicate with her, his family is not around there and he needs to get back to them, and there is pretty imminent danger. I do not fault this man at all for not staying. As he's driving home, we do see what I suspect is a drone and these flyers that come out of it, these red flyers. And initially I was like, great, it's like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's a warning, it's preventative, it's something that can potentially help these people. Wrong. Uh, it actually ended up to be what I think is a distraction tactic because the ones that were dropped where this family is were in Arabic, but the ones that were dropped elsewhere were in some kind of Asiatic language. And all of them say death to America. So what I initially thought was going to be a promise of aid or a warning or literally anything productive and helpful turned out to be something inherently evil. What's really frightening is the calculated nature of this attack, for lack of a better word. The fact that they chose fairly ambiguous countries, enemies, things like that, just to get Americans to target somebody else, it really leaves to question who the common enemy is here, if there is even one. 
And then finally we go back to G.H. Scott on the beach where we discover that all of these corpses are corpses that have been flung from downed planes and crashed boats. The particular scene I loved is when G.H. Scott falls over and he ends up in the exact same position facing a dead man. It is absolutely nasty and it, it to me highlights that money cannot protect this man and I think that's where he really started to get scared was realizing that he is in the exact same boat as these already deceased people. As we go back to Julia Roberts and the kids I am further reminded that I despise teenage boys. He is so frustrating. He is so blasé about everything that's happening and he's an irritating, annoying, ignoring even his sister. His sister is the one who brings up the fact that there are hundreds of deer. Migration patterns have changed. Something is wrong. The teenage boy dismisses this wholeheartedly, which I think is a huge mistake. I think animals are great at sensing danger and if you notice rapid, acute migration changes in that sort of volume, that is a cause for concern and we should pay attention. As they're going through the woods, the young boy unfortunately gets a nasty tick bite. There is a lot of redness and swelling around it and there's even some discharge that comes out when he removes it, which PSA, he removed it wrong. You got to twist and get the head out. Otherwise you still risk getting all those infectious diseases. Fun fact, but he gets this tick bite and it's obvious that the tick has been attached for a hot minute. That potentially comes into play later. As the families are reunited, all of the characters are back in one place. We discovered that G.H. Scott and the father have lied about aspects of what they saw. And for me, the only logical reason I could think for why they would do that is to avoid panic. Now, as G.H. Scott and Julia Roberts get some privacy, he talks about the quote-unquote curve, which is how a lot of bigwigs in the country supposedly, or around the world supposedly, can track and predict certain world events. He even admits, though, that even the world's best, brightest, and most wealthiest, even the 1%, with all that care and planning, the most they would get is a heads up for something like this. There is no protection offered, which is crucial. For me, that was very rewarding. Obviously, as a lower middle-class American in 2023, I am not going to be able to read the curve, nor will I have the resources to do so. But seeing this wealthy man get scared because he realized his ego was larger than what his money was capable of, that was rewarding to me. This man thought he was immune and he is slowly coming to terms with the fact that he is in the exact same boat as this poor family. Now at this point we start to get the very first sounds of what could be bombs or gunfire. The family is again separated, we don't know where the children are, well we as the viewer know where the children are, mom and dad do not. Uh, and currently, as the viewer, we're starting to lean towards either a terrorist attack to instigate war or just a flat-out war. Julia Roberts and Ruth end up going out to look for her children, rightfully so. And the weirdest, weirdest thing happens, this awful, high-pitched screech that definitely seems to be warfare, comes out of the blue. This scene was particularly frightening, but not because of any jump scares or anything like that. We, as the viewer, have to endure that high-pitched screech in the same length of time as the characters, and that also, to me, promotes plausibility. We experience it with them. 
It's a very like sensory stimulating scene watching Julia Roberts run through the woods, screaming with her mouth open and we see flashes of red and that god awful sound. That filming was impeccable. As we see the kids in the woods before they are found by Julia Roberts and Ruth, um, I think the shirts that they're wearing are actually fairly significant. The daughter is wearing a NASA shirt, which could imply that government agencies have a role in what is going on here. We already suspect that our satellite communication has been taken out and obviously all of our technology is currently obsolete. So that I felt was significant. The son is wearing an Obey shirt with a portrait of a man and looking through some research, it looks like it's just Andre the Giant, the French wrestler and actor. I can't really say if that means anything as I do not know it. Throughout this, I really enjoyed that political ideations are very subtle and nuanced. No one is out here targeting a party or a political idea. We are all in the same boat and every single person in this movie is at the exact same level of risk. The leveling of the playing field also makes this movie extremely scary. It gives the implication that there is no help. Finally, we get to the infamous Tesla scene. Um, and I will admit, the scene is even more alarming now that Musk has recalled such a large volume of his products. For navigation issues, all of the Teslas, what's really disconcerting, they're all white. All of the license plates say Tesla. They are all fresh off the lot and crashing into each other. It is very, very unnerving. The filming for this is, in a word, catastrophic in this scene. It, it's like the worst arcade game ever as she tries to avoid these oncoming cars that nobody is in. Um, the filming makes you feel I'm nowhere, I am everywhere, I'm in the car, I'm outside the car, I'm watching all of this happen real time and it feels and like as the viewer that I am experiencing it with them. Now there is another scene with the teenage son that I will admit I fully do not understand. The teenage son is jacking off without consent to pictures taken without consent of the homeowner's daughter. Unknown her age, I, she seems like a young adult, I'm not certain, and she's just chilling by her own pool. Does the threat of imminent fatal danger make him feel like he has the right, or would he have done it even if it wasn't the end of the world? Overall, men are pigs, I'm disgusted, but I am interested in other takes on this scene. Stephen King in particular has always utilized sexual scenes often and they always serve some form of literary purpose that I often struggle to identify on my own. Intimacy is definitely not the purpose in this scene, but I am curious as to what your guys' thoughts are because I cannot make heads nor tails of this. Now, as we're starting to get to the climax of this film, Julia Roberts and G.H. Scott's characters kind of feign intimacy and romance. And I truly don't think that it would have happened if the world was not ending. I don't think they have malicious bones in their bodies. Their marriages appear to be happy and healthy on the surface, but people are dying. I think these folks need an endorphin surge in any way that they can get it. And truthfully, I think it's bound to happen in any character coupling in this particular scenario. I think it just comes from desperation for contact, intimacy, and comfort in a very uncertain time. Now, I will say the song choice was absolutely ridiculous. The dancing from Julia Roberts is so white. Uh, same with the dad smoking pot with Ruth. Um, I think it's just relief and comfort. There's nothing malicious about it, about it. I think it's just seeking camaraderie in both situations. They're different, but they're kind of the same. Now, a similar form of comfort comes to the daughter. She is 
obsessed with the show Friends, which I will admit, so not my show. But it's her comfort show. She needs tangible, familiar comfort. She just wants to cling to something real and predictable with her world falling apart around her. Now the sun begins to fall ill. My first thought was the tick. It's rickettsial disease. It was attached for a long time. It's probably just that. Then I finally realized it was that high-pitched screech. He mentioned significant headache after that, and now his teeth are falling out. Why is teeth pulling so difficult to watch? It's not terribly gory, but it is a staple in horror and suspense thrillers. Why does it never get easier? The severe, rapid onset of illness is spooky. And the question I had that nobody appeared to be worried about at this time was, is he contagious? Dad and G.H. Scott take the son to try and get some medication from one of the contractors that G.H. Scott knows locally. When they arrive there, friend and turned to foe or distrusted stranger so quickly. Change of a dime. And truthfully, I think that also goes into the realism and plausibility of this movie. I think it's very realistic that Americans would turn on other Americans and become every man for himself. Everyone wants to protect their home and family. Um, and eventually it turns into a pissing contest of, are you going to shoot? Because I'm going to shoot. And really nonsense stuff. And I do wonder how that would play out in real time in real life. It, it makes me wonder, who would I trust? Who would I help? It's alarming to even consider. We finally go back to Julia Roberts and Ruth, and we end up seeing, again, this massive volume of deer. And for the first time, these prey animals are not frightened. Their unblinking eyes stare as they surround these women, and it's very unnerving because it's that lack of typical prey behavior that we are so used to. Now, I will admit, redeemable behaviors, that is the first mothering instinct I have seen from Julia Roberts. Not only was she able to identify where her daughter probably went, but she knew what to do, or at least an idea of what to do to keep her and Ruth safe from these unwell deer, because clearly something is wrong. She makes herself big and loud as she tries to scare them away. Ruth is not even her daughter, and realistically, Julia Roberts does not like her, but she made a selfless act. Yes, her character is redeemable. Mostly. As we end up leaving that scene, we get confirmation of what appears to be bombs and warfare happening from this kind of high vantage point that they have. We still have so many questions. Who is bombing whom? Who started it? Who's going to finish it? Where do I fall in this? Lots and lots of unanswered questions. Now, the final scene in the movie is where a lot of people got upset. I think this kid's got the right idea. She gets into this house, and it ends up being the neighbor's house with the bunker that they had been talking about, that G.H. Scott knew. And what the kid ends up doing is she finds a bunch of snacks and soda, and she goes into the bunker and finds food, water, obviously shelter. And funnily enough, they had the Friends collection on DVD. This girl knew exactly what she had to do. She got her comfy shelf, she got her comfy foods, and she went into the doomsday room. The movie ends with her watching the final episode of Friends. This ending was frustrating for a lot of people because it is so vague and nondescript. We get no answers, no closure, no nothing. And I really think that is ultimately the goal of this movie. That's the whole point, is to leave you with unanswered questions and to keep you scared. 
keep you tense, keep you alarmed, all of it. Now, the rest of this is just going to be my own personal opinions. The movie fully ends there, and here's what I think happens after. I think it is reasonable to assume that her family and G.H. Scott's family will make it into the bunker and reunite. This is because Julia Roberts already knew she had that mother's instinct and she knew that her daughter was probably there. I think the son is probably going to die, but they may have safety for a finite amount of time in that bunker. Without any clear answers to the nature of the threat and who it's coming from, or even a triggering event, we really don't know much more than that. Outcomes are still widely unknown other than I think it's possible the family will be reunited for a time. Now, I may absolutely get some hate for this, but I gotta tell you, this is not bad, and these are my ops. These are just what I thought watching the movie and what I think may have happened after. And finally, there are things I want to look up, but I'm too afraid of the answers. Uh, namely, that military strategy that G.H. Scott discusses. Uh, a three-part strategy. Is that real? No real enemy, just turn on each other after a cyber attack in isolation? Will it turn into civil war and collapse? Or will foreign powers get involved? I really want to know if that's a real strategy, because if it is, maybe we should start preparing. I'm also curious about the curve that the 1% is supposedly monitoring and trying to get information from. Is it, what type of patterns will it predict? Is it financial only? Who runs it? And where does that info go? What do I do with that information? Again, things I don't want to know. And finally, what I wouldn't give to be in a room with the Obamas and ask them what part was a warning? How much of this is going to be real? And just ask them, what do you know? Thank you so much for joining me. I apologize for all of the spoilers. If you have not already seen it, I highly recommend watching the movie before listening to this episode. Um, please do let me know what you thought about this formatting. I did initially watch the two and a half hour movie and recorded my reactions live. Brought it back down to bite-sized digestible chunks and then made interpretations from there. If there are other ways that you would like this formatted in an easier to digest way, I am happy to experiment with different formats for the podcast. So please let me know your thoughts. Let me know what's working, what you like, what you don't like. Well, anything I can do to make this a more pleasurable podcast for you. Uh, please come back on Sunday. We'll be diving into the next chapter of Holly by Stephen King. Uh, and just remember, it is all a bunch of hocus pocus. Don't forget to like and subscribe.